0: very romantic in a way. It's like you're sort of stumbling search through life, waiting to find your soulmate until the moment you discover, ah, cannibalism.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Hello, welcome to Sex Lives, New York Magazine's talk show about sex. I'm your host, Maureen O'Connor, and this week we're talking about porn, what it does to us, and the strange places it takes us to in our minds, in our lives, in our culture, in politics. I'm joined this week by science writer Daniel Engber, who recently wrote about the topic politically, and who has had a couple strange brushes with the fetish pornography world of his own. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. You wrote about the science behind what pornography does to our brains, inspired by the Republican Party. Is that right?
1: Yeah, there's been um, a bunch of reports now that there may be a crackdown on pornography coming.
0: Senator Todd Weiler has introduced a resolution declaring pornography a health crisis in Utah. Pornography has the same impact and the same changes on your brain that a drug addiction does. His resolution is the biggest international news from Utah's legislature this year. This article appeared in the London Daily Mail. Comments included, quote, just another religious nut job interfering in private lives. And, quote, he came to this conclusion after extensive research. The idea that pornography could be a public health crisis sort of stems from this idea that people who look at porn might be less interested in their primary relationships or they might be unhappy with their sex lives. Um, Can you explain sort of what that finding was and how people have sort of interpreted it since then?
1: Sure. So there's this finding that, you know, generally speaking, there's this link, this association between pornography and relationship quality. Well, mm-hmm. Douglas Kenrick had this idea that maybe what's going on is when you look at images of beautiful people, it's kind of like, it makes all regular looking people look uglier by contrast. And he compared that to, you know, if you stick your hand in a bucket of ice water and then... Mm things, it'll affect your sense of temperature. The next thing you touch will feel warmer, if I have that right, Um, in contrast. So he thought, well, maybe that's true of our judgment of people's attractiveness. So first he did this study in the 70s where he had people watch Charlie's Angels and Mm -hmm. that made them rate average looking women as being (laughs) uglier because they had just been looking at... Because
0: they've been looking at Farrah Fawcett, like running around in a bikini.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. They've been looking at the gorgeous women of of Charlie's Angels. And then the study that you mentioned in the 80s, he had people look at playboy centerfolds or playgirl centerfolds, and he had Mm -hmm. heterosexual men and women in the study. And then Each
0: one probably looked at the opposite gender then, so the women looked at Playgirl, Men, exactly. Playboy, ex- mm-hmm. exactly as those magazines were designed to be done. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Initially, of <laughs> course. I don't think that's the way Playgirl played out in the end, but... <laughs>
1: right. And then he asked them a bunch of questions about how they felt about their romantic partners. Mm-hmm. And what he found in the study was that um, the men in particular, not the women, after they looked at the Playboy centerfolds, but not when they looked at, you know, abstract art. that was the sort of the control condition. Mm-hmm. Um, they reported that their partners were less attractive on average, and they even said that they were less in love with their partners than the other men who had been looking at the um, abstract art. So
0: and know, was that the same finding as the Charlie's Angels finding, too, roughly?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was in line with that. It was mm-hmm. somehow looking at this certain imagery has this effect on how you perceive like real people in your life. And, Mm -hmm. and that, that playboy study, I think was especially disturbing. It was especially disturbing to me to read because it wasn't just, oh, I've been looking at these beautiful women now, you know, my partner doesn't seem quite as beautiful. somehow that strikes me, I don't know if that's true, but it strikes me as, as kind of more plausible in a way. But this idea that, I would then be less in love with my partner. That mm-hmm. it's, it goes even deeper than just judgments of physical attractiveness to my emotional connection to this person. So, But yeah. that was the finding. And so uh-huh. that was, and here all of a sudden was an explanation for all those survey data that I was mentioning before. You know, mm-hmm. maybe that's why men who report in these giant surveys looking at pornography also report, you know, poor relationship quality. Maybe it's because of this laboratory effect that Douglas Kendrick had found that just merely looking at these centerfolds made you less in love with your wife. I That's mean- so
0: intense because you think about like there are times when say I hear an incredibly brilliant person speaking and I think, oh, the people in my life aren't as smart as they were, but I don't think it ever leads to me feeling less in love, you know, right. although uh, you know, putting, you know, that it makes you wonder whether actually sexual evaluations are just fundamentally different in the way we feel love.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's one of the reasons why it's such a striking mm-hmm. finding is just, again, that it extends beyond just this judgment of attractiveness. To On
0: the other hand, maybe of... abstract art just makes you really desperate and you're like, I'm so in love. I can't be alone anymore. <laughs> I'm so lonely when I look at these splatter paintings. Well, then That's you... how I feel when I go to like <laughs> modern art museums, actually.
1: <laughs> I don't know if you found that the abstract <laughs> art made people more in love with their partners, but... Maybe that can't be ruled out.
0: It took me a minute to realize that when you were writing about that, that I was like, oh, they're talking about porn right now. Because yeah. I don't even think about Playboy as porn. Right. Yeah.
1: I th- <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I think that's true across the board in, in this kind yeah. of research. But um, I would say that the research on pornography is especially bad mm-hmm. um, for a bunch of reasons. But one of them is that the definition of pornography is hasn't really been nailed down by the people in the field. So you have decades worth of work but the people are all studying kind of different things. Mm-hmm. So um you know some of the research would describe the Playboy centerfold as erotica but not pornography. Uh-huh. You know, and so there's does does the pornography have to include people having sex in it? Is it merely with that it's something that it's you know media produced? Uh, with the intention to arouse, mm-hmm. like these are just a few different definitions that I saw, and um, it's how the hell are you supposed to make sense of this research literature when everyone's studying something that's slightly different? I mean, the first thing you need to do to to get to build a reliable set of results is to make sure you define your terms and you know you're all looking at the same thing. Mm-hmm. So. That's just one of many methodological problems with the research on porn, but it's like a huge one.
0: You wrote a really interesting piece um, a little while back interviewing the f- infamous cannibal cop that and just, you just were hanging out with him last night, right? As I believe you mentioned in the elevator to me.
1: I was talking to The <laughs> cannibal cop and I go way back.
0: Yeah. Why do you go so far back with... Wait, before we get into that, maybe (laughs) as a quick sort of reprisal, the reason I find that so interesting is that the cannibal cop was sort of this almost test case, but it's terrible to say that because he's also a real guy whose life was disrupted when he was discovered hanging out, was it, on sort of a snuff message board? Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, he was was a
1: New York City uh, police officer. Mm -hmm. He... um, has a fetish for cannibalism and bondage. Mm -hmm. And he started spending a lot of time on this website called Dark Fetish Net. And he would participate in these elaborate role plays with other members of the site where they'd go back and forth and plan the abduction of women and cooking and eating sometimes. Mm -hmm. And he just did this from his apartment, Mm -hmm. um, sometimes from his phone. And uh, eventually his wife, happened to find this stuff on their shared computer and she contacted the FBI and they started monitoring his, you know, messages that he would send through the system and otherwise. And he got arrested, charged with conspiracy to kidnap, I think. Um, and he was convicted that I started following his story when the, uh, when the indictment came down, Mm -hmm. he was convicted of this conspiracy charge, um, And then eventually the judge overturned the jury verdict saying, which is very, very, very unusual, saying that there just was not evidence, that the prosecution did not provide any evidence that he had actually participated in a conspiracy to do anything, because pretty much all the evidence against him was contained in these fantasy chats that he had online. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the backstory for, uh, for Gil, the cannibal cop. news, an almost unbelievable story. A New York City police officer has been arrested in a failed plot to kidnap dozens of women, cook them, and then eat them. Gilberto Valle has become known as the cannibal cop. The 28-year-old's wife uncovered the alleged plot. Charged in a conspiracy to commit kidnapping and allegedly used NYPD computers to get information on a list of victims. Defense lawyers did not deny his online activity, but called it a sexual fantasy that he would never act on.
0: These are thoughts, very ugly thoughts, but we don't prosecute people for their thoughts.
1: It comes down to this. Is this guy just fantasizing or is there enough evidence to suggest he was really planning to do this?
0: This this is one of the stories that also, as I've been asking you about this, I realized that I have a hard time judging whether people outside of New York, how aware they were of that, because his sort of when he was in court, it was like on the front page of the New York Post, like every single day was the new details. And every single newspaper was doing sort of explainers about what is cannibal fetishism. I mean, such a huge part of, I think, why it was. A flashpoint, I mean, in addition to the fact that like he's a member of the NYPD, so he's like this quasi—the type of person that we have a reason to talk about in New York City— mm-hmm. um, but also just that nobody had heard of this type of fetish before. Like I literally to this day, whenever someone talks about eating whole pig, like a pig roast or whatever, I literally always think of how in the cannibal cop articles they talked about how they called eating humans long pig. Mm-hmm. Cause we're like a long stretched out pig. Yeah. That is jammed in my mind forever. And I don't know, maybe I just really wanted to talk about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean I think maybe
0: was... I too wanted to envision this. But is that is that everybody was in some level participating on a really really low level of just sort of crazy weird imagination stuff that was titillating, was it directly sexy, probably not for most of us. For most of us it was titillating in a sort of horrified titillation way.
1: Yeah, I mean just I can provide a segue from our yes. conversation before, which is: I mean, this certainly was very bad for Gil's relationship. His wife yes. left him, uh, took their their daughter. That was a very, very
0: a, bad type of shrimp that he was
1: eating on a his very own. very bad type of shrimp. Um, one thing I wonder about is: did it have to go that way? I mean, so uh-huh. it, it Gil was, you know, had his life on Dark Fetish Net. Mm-hmm. And his wife was no part of that at all. He kept them yeah. completely separate, and to him that was totally fine. It was working, working okay. You know, sometimes he'd be tired because he was up late chatting with these guys, but um, but it worked out fine. But you know, I wonder if that might not have been sustainable. One of the uh, one of his co-defendants, because this was charges of conspiracy, so a bunch of these guys from this website were rounded up by the feds. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his co-defendants. Um, I remember that guy's wife was like, yeah, I knew about it. It's fine. I'm cool with it. It's just like his his weird chats, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's, um, so I don't, that, I mean, I think it's a good example of how this stuff can be very destructive to a relationship, but maybe not always, depending on what kind of relationship you're in.
0: I think it's that we have this sort of ongoing idea that the real you is the you you are when you're sort of by yourself, The Mm -hmm. idea being that that's a true you that is not performing for society's expectations. It's just pure what do you want? Although, as I think we also see in Gil's case, there actually is sort of a performance there, too. That's a different social world where he is, you know, having some sort of social cachet because he's able to help. You know, make friends and come up with pervier fantasies than they are, or you know that they 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 had these chats with one another. So there mm-hmm. actually is even sort of a social element there too.
1: Oh yeah, and I mean one of the interesting things. So Gill was named the Cannibal Cop. A whole big deal was made about when he was in in prison. He was you know he was working in the kitchen, and everyone's like, ah. <laughs> outrageous. But what wait, the, what...
0: wait, were people acting like it was outrageous? You mean like in public, like in the newspapers, or yeah. were the actual people in the jail be like, "Oh my god, the cannibal cops cooking"?
1: I think they, I think he, he <laughs> got some grief while in jail, but it was okay. You know, it was like a tabloid story. And when I finally, so I'd been writing about his case, I'd been emailing with him while he was locked up, and then when I finally met up with him in person, we when we just talked about, talked at greater length. It was funny. I found out that, like, the cannibalism angle is not really his bag as much. Like, he's kind of into it. He's into, like, the preparation for the cooking, but mostly he's a kind of like a bondage guy, so he likes the idea of, you know, trussing someone up for cooking. <laughs> He's not really... So when he would get in these fantasy He's like the chats,
0: foodie Christian Grey in his mind.
1: <laughs> so there's...
0: <laughs> Oops, Christian Grey just trussing people up for Thanksgiving too? Except he didn't eat them at the end, just spanked him a bunch.
1: Right, exactly. He's not into the eating. So, but he'd get in these chats. He's in these chats with this like British guy who kind of made himself out like this Hannibal Lecter type, <laughs> like sophisticated, cannibal sophisticate. Um, and so in the chats, Gil's like, Playing along, and he's more into the like planning the kidnapping and the preparation for cooking. The and then this, this British guy is more like, "Should we use fava beans or whatever?" I love the way this tastes. And
0: what synergy! <laughs> and,
1: right, and and Gil is like, you know, this is a give and take community. So he's like, "Okay, we did the part I like. Now I'm gonna help out with the part he likes." So there's, it's. I mean, I just think it's sort of ironic that he's the cannibal cop when really. Which probably in a funny way made him uh makes his story a little more palatable as it were than if he were called like the bondage cop or the torture cop or something, you know what I mean true, so there's'
0: this Cause other... it feels a little more just ridiculous in a way,
1: right I mean that i this is it's taking us on a whole different <laughs> tangent, but yeah, it, but it's something I'm really interested in, this question of like the line between um like, dark, dark fetishes and kind of, like, absurd dark fetishes. So, uh-huh. like, the, if you look at the cannibal porn, it's just, like, there's a lot of women tied to spits with apples in their mouths, which is dark. But, <laughs> yes. like, it's so... Well, I'm instantly silliness. giggling because it's... like it's... Polynesian, like, theme <laughs> restaurant or something, you know, yeah. compared to, like, autopsy photos, which mm-hmm. are... Also on that website. And so there, I also did this big story on quicksand fetishists. And Hmm. a lot of the fantasies of the people I was talking to are like snuff fantasies. It's watching women drown in quicksand. That like really Mm -hmm. turns them on. That's really fucking dark. But at the same time, it's so goofy. It's quicksand. (laughs) Like quicksand (laughs) doesn't exist. Yeah. I I was always trying to balance that in my mind. Does quicksand
0: exist in the world?
1: Not really.
0: Uh, I've only ever... Seen it in movies.
1: I'll talk your ear off about quicksand. That seems like another <laughs> fodder for another podcast. <laughs>
0: um, God, I remember as a kid being really afraid of quicksand because I'd seen it on like movies and stuff. And I remember going to the beach with my parents and being like, there could be quicksand. And they're like, you're, there isn't any. And I was like, how do you know?
1: Maureen, you're baiting me. I, re- I wrote like a 5,000 word story about you this, did? this exact topic. Yeah,
0: Quicksand isn't real. Is that where we're going to leave it? Uh, Maureen O'Connor is not going to run into quicksand is where we're going to You're not going
1: to run it. There's actually <laughs> the quicksand fetish community has created a map, a Google, a shared Google map with oh. quicksand locations around the United States. So you could find some quicksand if you wanted to, but it's not like the quicksand <laughs> in the movies. It's more like you kind of get stuck in it, but you don't sink. Okay. It's not as quick as they say. <laughs> right it's not like a pit that you slowly sink into it's like your feet get stuck and it could kill you because the tide could come in and you could drown
0: you know the nomenclature and the marketing for quicksand is perhaps like a a little a little more than what the quicksand is let me ask you something Mm. what is it that's not exactly water Mm -hmm. and it ain't exactly earth quicksand Speaking of strange fetish pornography, there's a famous story you wrote, I believe it was Crying While Eating, the story of how you you inadvertently turned your girlfriend, or perhaps yourself, into a food fetish porn star.
1: <laughs> that's a, that's like a narrow reading. Of <laughs> it's how I became a viral internet uh, sensation. Oh,
0: sorry. I always just go for the porno <laughs> angle. I mean, <laughs> narrow is what I do here. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I create a, a website um, with my friend Kaz Moskowski called com, which was videos of people crying while they ate, which we thought were really funny. and um,
0: With the goal of creating a viral sensation.
1: Yeah. And for a minute in 2005, it was a viral sensation. We were like on The Tonight Show talking about it and stuff. Why? Why was it interesting to people? Like, yeah, it wasn't sexual initially. No, no, I think it was, it's just funny. Like next to people would create their own videos and send them in and they'd tell us what they were eating and why they were crying. So comparing those two (laughs) things is funny. And it's just funny to watch people cry while while they eat.
0: It also points out that if there were to be that everyone's, you know, into whatever they're into and then they find a way to funnel it into a sort of established fetish institution, that also would suggest that they're, Potentially would explain sort of trends and fetishes almost that if we look at sort of historically that there are moments when it seems like everyone's talking about being tied up by a rich man who spanks them, whatever. And then you could imagine sort of any number of interests that sort of all get funneled together into the Fifty Shades fantasy of now or into cannibalism or office scenarios or whatever it ends up being.
1: Yeah, and, I, and it's so interesting to talk to people who have very specific fetishes about the path, like the the all the forks in the road that mm-hmm. led to that specific thing. Like, first I was into this, and then when I was looking at this online, I came across this website, which had images. I mean, even we were talking about the cannibal cop. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure if you asked him about it, he would tell you all about how he was first into, uh, like, bondage, and then he ended up on a cannibalism site, and he just liked the images that were bonded. The related. woman tied
0: to the stake was what he liked. Exactly. What happens after she's tied to the stake was sort of beside the point to him. So
1: he ends after that whole kind of like random walk through the world of of, you know, of the wonderful world of fetishes, he ends up in this world of cannibal fetish. I mean, it's just, that's really interesting to me, the path that one might take and how many just sort of random coin flips there are along the way that you could end up in a certain place.
0: It becomes very romantic in a way. It's like you're sort of stumbling search through life, waiting to find your soulmate until the moment you discover, ah, cannibalism. Exactly. <laughs> I love that. Is there anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> I feel like we've talked about I everything i reached... ever done. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's so much more. Um
1: Except. Sex and nursing homes. <laughs>
0: yeah. Oh, my God. We didn't even... His award-winning story about <laughs> sex and in nursing homes. Thinks, yeah. No. Well, thank you so much, Dan. I think I think that brings us to our Forks in the Road conclusion of this podcast. <laughs> we
1: have arrived. Thanks for having me. <laughs>
0: yeah. Thank you so much um, for coming on. I guess every, every episode we ask our listeners to call in based on, you know, if they have something they heard about, they have a question about, a story they want to tell. So that number, it's 646-494-3590. This week, I would like to hear about the strange fork in the road path that led people to discover a genre of pornography, a fetish, not even necessarily your fetish, but the time, you know, what many forks in the road led you to the weirdest genre of stuff it turned out you liked. Yeah, so call in and let us know. That number is 646-494-3590. So thanks for coming in, Dan. Thank you. Um, Hopefully we'll have you back soon. Next time you discover a weird fetish or you just (laughs) want to go deep on quicksand. Um, Sex Lives is produced by Alana Milner and Afim Shapiro. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Thanks for listening. Give us a call. That's 646-494-3590. And we'll talk to you next week.